What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, squash fans. So in this episode, we are releasing our first interview of the We Are Squash Radio series. And we couldn't be more thrilled and proud of our first guest, who is a remarkable person, squash player, teacher, and recently an author. Before we jump into the interview, here's some quick background on the concept of this series between myself, Connor O'Malley, and James Dotson. Take a listen. You know, you really brainchild this, and this was almost about a year ago when we were in Chicago together. We were talking about this, and why don't you talk a little bit about where you are and where you think this will go? All right. Um, I'm a huge literary fan, black literature fan, Um, having worked with Third World Press here in Chicago, grown up with the press, and about the time we were starting Metro Squash, I fell for a play called uh, radio golf. It's the story of a young Ivy League educated developer and his partner who's a big fan of Tiger Woods and is hearing golf or using golf, learning golf to integrate himself into the banking world, which also provides an opportunity for him to own uh, a radio station. It's written by August Wilson, great playwright, who over a number of years wrote a number of plays on the Black experience in Pittsburgh. You know, one play representing the decade and the last of his plays was called Radio Golf, and it was uh, first premiered in 2005, and I saw it uh, probably a couple years later, about the time that Metro Squash was uh, being considered to provide youth programming for the new development for our site. But you know, in terms of those connections, what resonated for me, you know, I'm a Howard University alum, I'm not an Ivy League alum. Um, but I did work as a legal assistant supporting clients to secure radio stations. And of course, you know, squash is a big thing as a sport. But the point of the story to me as we do this squash community development work is that it's important to represent all the voices in the process, to include all the voices in the process, uh, the diversity of voices of uh, uh, the marginalized as well as the mainstream. And another favorite poet of mine, and this is a actually one we published with Third World Press is Gwendolyn Brooks, who's the first black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, She said that perhaps what we need is not another individual to be roared up or or royalized or routed, but a lot of the littles, understanding the strength of clean cooperation and responsibility. And that's really, that's, that's important to me. So as James said, we're gonna be looking to bring on a variety of voices on this series to help share a broader picture of the great people who shared this love of the sport of squash. Our first guest is Raheem Logan, who is a Harlem native and street squash alum. Raheem is the author of the recently released self-published children's book called Black Boy Fly. It's the first title to enter the squash literary canon from a hip hop millennial. Raheem's love of squash took him well beyond Harlem by first going to Canterbury boarding school and then on to Wesleyan College, where he ended up earning the number one position on the squash team by his senior year. After graduation, Raheem quickly found his passion for coaching and teaching, first at City Squash, but then found himself back at Canterbury, where he's now coaching the squash team and teaching world religion. Take a listen to James and Raheem's conversation. Raheem, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, James. It's, uh, you know, kind of just 
humbled to be here. And thank you to Connor as well. I passed cross when I was an intern at U.S. Squash for about two years. Um, the summer just before my senior year at Wesleyan and after my freshman year. So it's nothing but love for U.S. Squash. And like I said, thank you for just creating this space and this platform for us to speak. And I'm happy to just be able to chat with you today. But tell us about your squash journey. I, how did you how did you get into squash? <laughs> so I'm born and raised out of Harlem, New York. I'm a proud Harlem. I don't say New York, I say Harlem so that people know the difference. Um, because when I think of New York, I think of Times Square, Manhattan, and I'm like, I didn't grow up in that environment. So I wanted I want to make sure that that's acknowledged uh, first and foremost. My mm-hmm. squash journey kind of just began, it began in a cafeteria, funny enough. Cafeteria in seventh grade. I just graduated out of elementary school and a representative from Street Squash, her name was Mary Cipollone, came and presented this program called Street Squash. Talked about this sport of squash, which I had no idea about. It talked about all these cool potential opportunities to like go out of the state and play squash. And I wasn't interested in it. I heard it. I was like, oh, that sounds cool, but not for me. Um, <laughs> like, that was my mindset throughout the whole presentation. And I still remember being there. My two older brothers on my mom's side had played basketball. And I had played basketball up until that point. So I was kind of looking forward to furthering that there. And also just getting a little social popularity in this new junior high school where I didn't know anyone. Um mm. However, my mother had other plans for me. (laughs) She felt intrigued by the same presentation that I wasn't interested in. And she came to me and was like, you're going to do this. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like, I got plans to play ball. I got plans to, like, (laughs) do my thing in this school. No one. Mm -hmm. And to do this unfamiliar thing. For me at the time, felt like it was whack. It was like, yo, like, I don't know what that is. And I don't think I should be the one trying that. Um, (laughs) But my mother, I I thank her so much for the openness of her mind. She was like, she kind of broke it down to me of, you're going to try this for a month. Can you at least try it for a month? Mm -hmm. But make sure you give your best effort for this month. If after this month that you do this sport and you try this new thing, you could make a decision on it. But you're not going to deem something not for you without actually giving it a try. Wow. And, you know, I heard her. I was like, you know, that's real. And <laughs> I'm not one to do things like half-heartedly. So she was like, yo, like, do it. Really put your, like, effort into it and see what happens. And okay. a month turned into where we are now, um, just in a lot of different ways. W- within that month, I met some really good people who are friends of mine to this day. And it made it was like a, a home for all of us as we were trying to find our way with this new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, within that, we're just trying to get acclimated to this different space because the first place that we practiced at was the Harvard Club out in New York City. Okay. And going into that club is a kind of, is a little spooky. Just like, you know, you're a young kid with a squash bag. You kind of like, it's fancy in here. Um, everybody in the suit, people are all serious. You walk in the locker rooms and you see people kind of casually, men casually walking around. 
<laughs> no one prepared us for this though. Mm -hmm. No one had this conversation with us. Um, but when I would say a turning point for me with squash was when I went to my first tournament, I got humbled, um, got chopped up. It was the best non-scoring at this time. And the first time that I had lost and lost badly at a tournament, um, it kind of just put me in a place of you have so much work to do in this sport. Wow. Um, okay. We were practicing together among, you know, it was like trials, like, you know, with the new people. So, you know, you get a couple points, you hit the ball a little bit, you get a little hype, and you think you're like better than what you are. <laughs> um, I wasn't one of the best players coming out to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I had this backhand swing that like just wasn't fluid and I couldn't hit the ball super hard, but I was very accurate when I did hit the ball. So that's where okay. a lot of my sort of distinction with my friends came when I first started. And after I lost at that tournament, I kind of just like the competitor in me was like, I want to get better at this. Where, where was the tournament? Huh? Where was the tournament? It was, if I recall, because I, I, I remember my mother being there. So I think it was at the okay. Harbor Club in some capacity. And I got, yeah, you know, I got embarrassed. The, the, <laughs> well, that 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 happens along the way. It's the uh, the point in which you and you have to fail before you succeed, right? And and you have a choice on how you respond to that, though. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You, you can respond to that and be like, "Oh, that's not for me. I'm a dub it." Or you could respond, "Oh, and I think squash and just most of the individual sports provide that reflection of that person beat you." Like, you can't really look around for excuses. You can try to blame the coaches, the coaches, but, like, that's on you. What are you not doing? What effort are you not putting in? What questions are you not asking? And that drove me. So then, you know, you get a little sort of, like, you get a chance to go to squash camp. You get a chance to go away. And, again, with these experiences, you see different things. You have some amazing people that treat you simply as a person. Mm -hmm. And then you get these people that kind of like assume that they know everything about you before you have yet to open your mouth. Wow. Um, yeah. And I was just an observing young man. You feel that energy, whether it's this assumption that I'm this damn doing distress that came from this broken home because I said I was from Harlem and not taking the time to really get to know my experience and the love that I've come from. It's like the material stuff may be not there, but how did you jump to that conclusion about my whole upbringing without giving me the platform to just speak to you about it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, go ahead. was having those kind of conversations, was that at the Harvard Club, or one of the city clubs, or where was Street Squash practicing at that point? We practiced between two spaces. We were at the Harvard Club during the weekdays. And then on the weekends, we were at the Dodge Fitness Center at Columbia University. Okay. I didn't realize that. I used to stay uh, at the uh, Yale Club or there was another club I would stay with if I was visiting New York. And I remember one visit, I'd come out of the building and was walking around the corner. And I, I saw these young people with uh, backpacks with rackets sticking out of them. And I, I, and I just said, I, I shouted out, street squash. And these cats turned around and looked at me, stared me down and said, city squash. We're from city squash. <laughs> um, 
I, I imagine that you know you all crossed paths and may have been practicing um, at the clubs together at some point. Yeah. Um, but- uh, no. So that that actually didn't happen. We might have had we had matches and things like that when we played against them, but we we didn't practice together uh, at least during the time that I was coming through the program. Mm-hmm. You would see okay. Them, you would see them at bigger tournaments. Or you would mm-hmm. see them at matches like you know we would have at times like a sort of like New York versus Boston match because okay. at the time had the numbers and we were just up and coming city squash and street squash so we would sometimes do that or you would see them at SEA team nationals and things like that so for me outside of after practice you're still getting on that B or D train once you go to uh like 42nd Street and Bryant Park you take that back uptown. Mm-hmm. Get off that train. That's a different experience, too. There's a transition that goes from being like kind of this is cool to like, I don't know. For me personally, again, I like to speak from the eye experience. It almost felt like something to hide when I came, when I took those bus, when I took those train stops back up to Harlem. Mm-hmm. It was like, what were, you, what were you hiding? I was in terms of the the love for the game of squash. You know, ah, okay. you're walking around squash, uh, Harlem with the squash bag on, you're not necessarily looked at as the flyers. And that level of insecurity kind of ate at me. You know, I wasn't super tall yet, and I'm still not very tall, but I was shorter. And then to have this bag, to have like, it was kind of like this, you know, like, honey, I'm walking around <laughs> with this bag. And it was a level of, you would be fielding these questions. Oh, is it baseball? Is it tennis? Is it racquetball? Is it handball? Is it basketball? Is it hockey? I've heard all these things and you say, no, it's squash. And there's this look of disapproval, but also confusion. <laughs> and then you you feel that as an impressionable young sort of like 11, 12 year old, you see mm-hmm. that, you know, and the see the enthusiasm not match, it made me question what I was doing that time. It seems like, you know, you had this duality. You know, you were uh, getting, being questioned about uh, yourself at the Harvard Club. People were asking you questions or maybe judging you in a way or um, making assumptions about you and about coming from Harlem that just weren't appropriate, just weren't right, right on the mark at all. And you were also being questioned when you were out in Harlem because you were carrying this racket bag. It felt like... I would say at the Harvard Club, again, no love lost for them, but it felt like us truly expressing ourselves, like being sort of like, you know, teenagers who are excited about this new journey, it felt like we couldn't be too loud in expressing of that because of the space that we were in. It was like, you got to keep that down. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, for us, and we're, we're meeting each other for the first time, some of my sort of like teammates, at Street Squash and we're excited. And then, you know, we're just like teenagers who are just trying to understand all the different things around them. It was almost like, that's a little bit too loud. And and then when you go to Harlem, it's, you know what's popular, but you also know what they don't know yet in terms of like, you know about this sport that others may not know about. But what happened was this like, again, it, it felt like a, defending of something that you loved. Um, You know, I was fortunate for squash because it essentially gave me my own path separate from my brothers and the shadow that came with that. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When embarking on a new new path, it was almost this like question of like, how much do you really love it? Because people are going to question that, you know. But there must have been there there must have been something that drove you at that point. There must have been you must have had had some feeling of accomplishment um, or success at that point that kept you going. What might that have been? Mm, I would say as I went to a few more squash tournaments and stuff like that, I actually. I became like one of the youngest people on the high school team. I was an eighth grader playing on the varsity team and I mm, okay. some noise there. And it was like, oh, like who is this like young person that's like sort of hanging with these older people? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I got access to that, like playing on the top team, the street squash team that ended up winning sort of team nationals. And I was the youngest person on this team among sort of like high schoolers and things like that. Okay. Okay. The successes started to come because it was like my thing was like I'm not gonna be outworked. <laughs> Regardless yeah. of somebody got better skill than me, then like I like running. So it's like if you're gonna beat me, then like I'm gonna keep running, um, <laughs> chasing that ball down. Because if I'm on this court and I'm taking up space and time, I'm gonna use it to the most of my ability. Mm-hmm. So with that came the successes with um and also I was one of the poster childs of the program. It started to sort of grow and you sort of see that happening. But my okay. awareness never let me forget about my friends that weren't getting the same opportunities. It was like, why not? Why can't the whole squad come together? I'm a big like if I'm coming up, I want to look at my peoples and be like, I want them to come with me. And, you know, some of them dealt with behavior stuff and trying to balance out taking their grades seriously and the squad seriously and things like mm-hmm. that. I found myself in a lot of spaces with just girls at some point, whether it was like the elite practices and things like that, because you had to have a certain GPA to even be at those practices. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So at times I found myself in a lot of spaces among the girls who kept their grades up. But I was also someone who took their squash seriously at the same time. So it was like, you know, almost like a best of both worlds in some way. And something that changed the arc of my whole sort of trajectory was a college prep trip when I was with Street Squash. Um, part of Street mm-hmm. Squash is exposing you to college early just so you have the the sort of awareness of the different options that exist. Uh, not too many HBCUs, but that is another <laughs> Um, I remember going to SUNY Albany and this presentation happened on the Sunday morning of just discussing what was required to get into the school. I'm a ninth grader. Mm-hmm. My grades are popping at this point. I'm like, ooh. And they brought up this word that I didn't know at the time, but it struck mm-hmm. me. It was rigor. It was like, oh, you know, your, your college application has to have a lot of uh, academic rigor. And I was like, what is that? Mm-hmm. And when I found the definition of that word, it was being pushed to your like limits and really challenging you. And as a okay, okay. I was kind of like paying attention and seeing things that the school, the same school as my junior high school was also a high school. Mm-hmm. So I was in the same space. However, I would see some of the people that were the valedictorians, salutatorians, and from previous years and come back and be struggling to some degree with their transition to college. And I'm like, you know, on paper, these is the smartest people that I knew. And I, I I guess I didn't think too much of the social context of the transition that comes with going to potentially a PWI, a predominantly mm-hmm. white institution. But mm-hmm. I saw their GPAs drop. 
I saw Ooh, that grades okay. be reflective of things. And I was like, these are some of the smartest people that I knew. So mm-hmm. if they're some of the smartest people that I knew and they're struggling with the transition to college, I'm going to like, figure out what that is. What does that mean for me? Yeah. What does that mean for me in a few years? Was the school preparing them to succeed in college or was it preparing them to graduate out of that high school and potentially nothing more? These are some of the questions I was asking myself as a ninth grader. This is a point in which, to me, the book, uh, Black Boy Fly, looks like a memoir Mm. um, because you kind of reach this peak within the street squatch realm and you're, you know, you're about to take off and and go on to college, but uh, that may or may not be the case, but let's focus on the book for a bit. Okay. Um, Again, the title of the book is Black Boy Fly. It has a a beautiful cover. Uh, Oh, yeah. This boy. (laughs) I couldn't have done this without him. So every time I'm talking about this book, I'm amplifying his voice as well, based out of New Orleans and, I think it's just so important because that's that's Devante. Devante. Mm-hmm. Devante Smith. Devante Smith is the uh, illustrator of the book. It's beautifully illustrated. Uh, the cover is beautiful blue, um, yellow. Um, it's wonderful. Um, and inside are a number of great illustrations bringing it to life. But tell me about the what was the impetus of the idea to produce the book? So the process of the book creation came from. One of my friends that I met through Street Squash, funny enough, his name was Gatel Bennett. And he has seen some of the writing that I've done for my blog. And I kind of just, I write as a form of therapy, but also share that with others. And he had urged mm-hmm. that we decide to write a book for our young people. He was like, yo, let's do like a book that has like an underdog mentality, has some lessons in it and uplifts people. That was the, that was the, that was how the okay. whole thing started. And I got so excited by the idea that I kind of just like sat down over the course of a few weeks and some time, like just wrote a lot of things down. If you would, I mean, tell us, uh, tell us about the story. Tell us the story as much as you can without giving (laughs) giving it away. So the story is about a young, the, the protagonist of the main character in this book is a young man by the name of Rashad. I want to come back to something that you said about this being a memoir. I, I, it's not a memoir though, you know, because I think a lot mm-hmm. of people think that this is my individual story, but this is the story of so many, so many young people that I've interacted with from my three years as director of Squash, the City Squash, to all the young people that I've connected with throughout the SEA network. Um, I saw a lot of young men that didn't want to talk about their feelings and I think about the consequences mm-hmm. of that as you transition into adulthood, if you never really address those negative feelings, whether that's feelings of sadness, whether that's feelings of frustration and things like that. So that's why I say it's more of a children's book than my own personal memoir, because blended mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it's things I wish I said, some of the things I did, but some of the things I wish I said, and some of I wish I heard from okay. the adults around me in terms of just the openness of the communication. So I just want to give that backdrop before I talk about the book. But Rashad is a young man with his family and really enjoys going to the beach. As a city kid, you don't really get those opportunities to go to the beach that often. And having that experience mm-hmm. with his family and 
all the other intangibles that came with it provided a level of bliss. He was so happy and at peace. And he really would watch the seagulls above him. Because he wasn't in the city, you know, people try to chase birds and have them just fly. But he recognized with these seagulls at the beach how calm they were moving around the world, regardless of the context. Mm -hmm. That intrigued me. It was like, mm -hmm. I always see people moving too fast or moving too quickly. And to see this being kind of just floating in the sky, it's kind of cool to me. And he got attached <laughs> to really wanting to just look forward to those beach trips. And there's a transition mm -hmm. that happens with his family. His parents split up. And those sort of beach days become a distant memory, you know? And there mm -hmm. was not a level of communication about it. And I think that's one of the book's center themes is just this willingness to just be honest and forthcoming with the communication. It was like he would ask about returning to the beach as the split was happening between the mom and dad. But there was mm -hmm. never a response to those inquiries. It was kind of like these things kind of just fell upon the wayside. Like I thought about how adults just sometimes don't listen to young people asking questions. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll get to it. Or maybe when in reality, you could just be like, this is probably not going to happen. Because you give them that mm -hmm. false hope that is happening. But for Rashad, he started to pick up and understand what that meant over time and with all that transition mm -hmm. came the introduction in the birth of this opportunity of squash so his parents kind of quickly just like his mom had heard about it from a friend sign him up this is how <laughs> mm -hmm. the story goes sign him up and i i i like the wordplay just in terms of like the mom was telling him to be open-minded and try things try new things but you know i also wrote mm -hmm. in the book like Sometimes adults say those things to kids or young people, but they're so judgmental in their ways. So it's this conversation that has to happen too. Cause it's like, how are you telling our young people to be open-minded to explore the world and to try new things, but they're paying attention to someone not doing that. What does that mean for them? You know? So I would throw in little droplets mm -hmm. there. And then the book is essentially like Rashad's fascination with the game of squash his progress mm -hmm. of getting better at it. But with that progress of him getting better at it, there was still something missing for him in that space. Wow. And just for the audience, describe what age was he, was, he at that time? He was like nine going into 10. So mm -hmm. this was like just mm -hmm. that time. So he was around like nine, 10 years old. Um, the, the split okay. happened just okay. after his ninth birthday. And with that comes the introduction to squash. It comes the social dynamics of infiltrating a predominantly white space too. It's the locker room mm -hmm. stuff that the adults don't always see. They're like, oh my God, like, you know, my kid is really nice. It's like behind closed doors, who mm -hmm. are they really? There's an interaction mm -hmm. that happens there um, that I thought was so important to highlight of a white kid questioning like, why are you so black? And how do our young people respond to situations like that? Because I could have easily had a fight happen mm -hmm. and the person handled it like that. But I wanted to redefine and reimagine those types of experiences for our people. It's like the easy thing mm -hmm. would have been to like pop off on somebody. Like we know that we know that mm -hmm. outlet as an option. But I wanted to create an option in which you could handle your own with your words, but not throw a punch at mm -hmm. them 
and still walk out of there and stun on them. So as the book progresses, it was this sort of like Rashad handled that moment of pressure really well. And as he gets better at squash, he almost doesn't think about the thing that is missing from that space. He almost tries to sort of push it away and not recognize its existence. And then the culmination, the the point in the book in which it turns is he gets hit with that. And again, I don't want to mm-hmm. give too much away of the book. But he gets All hit right. with that let's, and then let's... he responds and like he sort of succumbs to the pressure. And then the the sort of next part of the book is him working on the communication front with all of that. Because it's broken down into three little sections. All of that. There's the black, mm-hmm. there's the boy, and then there's the fly aspect. And I was very intentional about that. Okay. So for the black part, it was yeah. like amplifying his melanin and how important it is to be proud of your skin. Like being at the beach and seeing mm-hmm. that girl, mm-hmm. being like, I love this. The mm-hmm. boy part of the book are the things in which it reminded him that he is still a young boy. From the locker room situation that goes down in the book to interacting with the new coach and trying to really figure out that dynamic. And the fly mm-hmm. aspect, he runs away from something. Spoiler alert. Um, he runs away from something <laughs> in the book. And yep. his sort of pathway and his journey towards being honest and being truthful eventually leads to him being able to fly. Raheem, so you gave us a, a, a good understanding of the book. You gave us a picture of what is it, is it about. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your writing process? For those people listening that have something that you might want to share with the world, but you're kind of afraid of what people might think and things like that, or people going to like it, it's mm-hmm. like what ended up sort of being the, the driving force for me was I'm doing something bigger than myself. Devontae's involved. These young people are involved. But it was also relinquishing that that want to control the outcome of the situation. It was, I don't know what's mm-hmm. on the other side if I decide to release this book into the world. And the fact that I think that I know exactly how this is going to go, me having this, mm-hmm. this power as a person that I'm like, yo, I don't know. So having that willingness mm-hmm. to just try and find out definitely helped me in terms of the peace and then seeing the reception, seeing the positivity that is sort of being spread. Two questions I had to ask myself mm-hmm. was, do you believe in this, this project? And mm-hmm. are you leading with love with this project? And I'm like, I'm like if I can answer yes to both of those questions, what is, like, you can acknowledge the fear, but there's nothing really to be afraid of. Move forward and figure it out. <laughs> so that's what ultimately sort of drove me forward. All right. Black Boy Fly. And so now coming back, we just want to talk about life after Street Squash. You know, you moved on to Wesleyan, the college years. What was that like? So, you know, my transition to college, it was smooth in the academic sense um, outside of my freshman fall because of the fact that I went to Canterbury. That transition to Canterbury was probably harder than my transition to Wesleyan was academically. We should probably come back a bit. So, you know, you know, you were at Street Squash. But you actually were enrolled at Canterbury yeah. for, uh, for high school. Mm-hmm. So when I went through the application process, I was just, I, I was kind of in the mindset of wanting something bigger for myself. And it happened to be beyond the place that I was currently at. 
when I got to Canterbury, because again, I, I think this is a central part of the story. When I got to Canterbury, I played for a year and then I quit. I was in this denial about how much squash meant to me. And I think the demon from navigating Harlem with my squash bag and that young child who wanted the approval of others through what I was doing, it was still, it crept in me. It was still within me. Even as I propelled myself, it still was within me. And yeah. came to a point of not knowing if I could play at a school like Wesleyan. I didn't even know that was a possibility for me. <laughs> so I quit and didn't talk to anyone about that. I kind of mm -hmm. pushed street squash away. I was like, yo, I'm going through something right now. And I wish in retrospect, I had communicated about that. Mm -hmm. I came back to sort of playing squash after a year and a, a year and a quarter of a hiatus. I played mm -hmm. basketball and I wanted to use that as a route to, you know, get a college scholarship or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Back to squash after denying my love for it or suppressing it, if you will, for about a year or some change. And when oh, I, wow. came back, I had a level of clarity about what I wanted to do, I was mm -hmm. like, I, I want to play squash in college. This is something that I want to do. Wow. I'm going to be intentional about it. However, the college applications were already due at this point. I come back towards the end of December of my first senior year. Mm -hmm. And I played squash throughout that season. And I was like, I still want to play. It felt like it was a, a story that it was like this weird ending that there was more to be written to this story. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. I was like, I could go to a college and then transfer. However, I don't know if I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then by some stroke of luck, I ended up getting the opportunity to repeat my senior year at Canterbury. And with that level of clarity, I visited all the schools I was interested in, as opposed to when I did this a year before and I was playing basketball, I applied to the, the biggest school, the biggest public schools that have the biggest out-of-state tuition in the country. And I wasn't doing what I said I was going to do for my mom hmm. in terms of providing that financial relief. So when I had that level of clarity and knew what I was doing, I was like, this is where I want to go in terms of Wesleyan. And I ended up getting in uh, early decision. And yeah, that began my Wesleyan journey. So I, I think that, that pretext is important. As I got to Wesleyan, though, it I, is. I went from having three of my best friends at a time on my team at Canterbury. Shout mm -hmm. out to Chris Fernandez, Kingsley and Marco, Jose Alvarez, Freddie Hernandez. Those are my peoples. Um, <laughs> I got to Wesleyan, and I was the only person of color in this space. And that was a different dynamic. I love squash and the way that we were doing it because we were some people from Harlem and the Bronx. Oh, and we could just laugh about it and do our thing. Mm -hmm. I think at Wesleyan, it was this level of unfamiliarity. Again, there were some really nice people, don't get me wrong, but it was also just like, where do I see myself in this space? And it was trying to figure out how do I move through this space and still be myself. You know, some of the teammates want to warm up the country music. I'm like, that's not getting me in the headspace to do anything well on the squash court. <laughs> like, I know that. And the first year was so defined by not wanting to rock the boat and not wanting to make others uncomfortable. Okay. Wow. So talks with parents and subtle things and wanting to bring friends to my squash matches and having them get barraged with assumptions and microaggressions. It was like, I wanted to talk to people about that. 
But uh, also as a freshman and, you know, those sort of like roles and things like that, I wasn't sure how to talk to anyone about that. I didn't want to feel alone in that space. So that first year, my squash game, I played number nine to finish off my freshman year. And I was at a sort of little bit of a conflict of trying to figure out how do I really step into myself in this space. Um, was Did you have any support in terms of uh, just advice that you really could, folks you could reach out to about that? I mean, you talked about I, so holding I, back a bit. Yeah, so I had some amazing coaches. So I had a really amazing high school coach named Jen Chandler. And mm -hmm. then I had a, another woman um, by the name of Shona Kerr, who was my college coach. Mm -hmm. And I had to really let go because I love my high school coach, who was a woman. And she was just so cool and down to earth. And really, like, we talked a lot of things out. And I wasn't sure if I was ready to really give that trust to another coach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And through talking to my high school coach, it was like, yo, you got to like, you got to give part of yourself if you want to see the realness of someone. Mm -hmm. And I connected with Shona with seeing the sort of microaggressions and the assumptions that got made with her as a result of being a woman coaching a traditionally men's position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw the assumptions about the level of experience. And I saw men never get faced with those questions, even though they never touched the racket before. It was like, huh? No, Shona, Shona's great. Shona is, is great. She came out to, uh, used to bring the team out to Arizona mm -hmm. um, to practice. So we, you know, we crossed paths and had a chance to talk. Uh, she's really interesting. Yeah, she's a real one. So it was like, you know, it was, it was connecting over that. And mm -hmm. after my freshman year, it was probably like right after the season ended, I went to Shona and I told her, I was like, I don't want to be the token black kid playing 14 on this team. No one <laughs> the Wesleyan team that from the year prior, mm -hmm. I was number nine to finish my freshman year. And I remember looking at the court where the number ones and twos played. And I was like, I'm going to be on there before I'm done. <laughs> you know, people were like, Oh, that's cute. You got some lofty expectations. I'm like, all right. And I talked to Jonah and I'm like, what do I have to do? in order to sort of like keep elevating. That was mm -hmm. not, I had this hitch in my backhand swing. I didn't mm -hmm. bend my elbows. I had to redo my whole swing. And she kind of asked me if I was ready for that. And I worked with her until the end of the school year. And then I put in the work over the summer. I went from number nine to number four. Wow. No, no one left. And people was like, yo, so what did you do? I'm like, oh, I worked. <laughs> the determination to not just be an afterthought because a drive kind of hit in me of like, yo, if you're going to really do this, then do this. If you spend all this time here, then you might as well step into it. Um, and I learned a lot from the leaders around me. We had a number one at the time who identifies as homosexual. Mm -hmm. And I saw how he led. I saw mm -hmm. how he played with integrity. He was the nicest competitor. But he was a competitor. But mm -hmm. he was nice. And it was like, you could be the fiercest competitor, but not be a jerk while you do it. Right. And I was so, I had I had a lot of just pent up anger. I was like, oh, I'm about to just like really rash on these people. And I wanted like, I want them to feel that. But I, I had to understand that I had to be intense, but not too intense that it clouded my judgment. It clouded wow. my ability to do my thing. And I learned that from some of the leaders in front of me. And, and then, you know, the social context with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the different protests and 
the verdict of Michael Brown, it's mm-hmm. it sort of reminded me of how different my experience still was from many of my teammates. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like, you could get caught up in the sauce and like really be like, oh, like that can't happen to me. But how you deal with those, the news of some of these situations, realize a slight difference in your experience. And you could go to the training trips and like all this stuff and get all the, the privileges that come with being in that space. But you also then get checked by reality. It's like, oh, don't forget. Don't forget, we still got the systematic racism that we're dealing with in this country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this space. You can try to deflect it not existing. Like, I remember getting the the verdict of the Michael Brown case. Aaron Wilson was acquitted. And I mm-hmm. cried in the locker room by myself before a practice. And I was like, yo, I feel so alone right now, you know? And that hit me. I remember going outside, like, kind of, like, tears, like, low, like, kind of, like, in my eyes, but, like, kind of hovering around there. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember, like, it was like, oh, my God, that's so sad. And that was almost like the best response that they had. And I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but it was almost like that felt like an afterthought to them. In Mm -hmm. my mind, it was like, I cannot not know that information because as good as I try to be in, like, I don't want to be like them and Mm -hmm. stereotypes and doing all those things. If somebody sees me from a distance wearing something or just... Mm -hmm. Just being as an individual, they could feel threatened by that and want to end my life. Did you experience that at Wesleyan in the in the in the town? So the surrounding town is very much predominantly black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where we we would run into things was when descriptions of people to look out for in the Middletown community, because again, it's not a gated community. So sometimes like people from the town kind of happen to be walking around the campus. There would be times where security would have these descriptions that could be any black person in America. And these were reports that came from different places on campus. Right. But like, once you got word of that, you like, yo, like, who are they looking for? Are they looking for me? But would you, would they, would you get an alert on your phone? I mean, a, a security alert on your phone? It was it was at times you get an alert on your phone or you would get like a, a potential email of like to look out for this. And that again, you just like I I'm not afraid of no black people. I'm like, oh like if I see somebody that look like me, I'm like, oh word. But I also thought about the potential feeling of a threat from somebody mm-hmm. who doesn't identify. Right. Right. It's like, oh, that person doesn't go here, so it must immediately be bad. And but what then, was what was the environment like? With students and uh, organizations, does Wesleyan have a Black Student Union? Um, yeah, and, so it, yeah. it has different subsets. What I really was intentional about was making sure I had my spaces of like non-white people. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I spend more than enough time with the squash team. That wasn't going to be a doubt. Um, yeah. We practice all the time, but I I wanted to sort of find spaces that affirmed my identity outside of that. Um, there was this group of visible men that met as a collective and got a chance to talk about what it was like navigating a predominantly white space and also just looking to be in community with other people as well. As I got older, I started to just think about ways that I could bring squash and the exposure of it to the students of color at Wesleyan that probably didn't know what it was outside the context of me talking about it. I ran a couple of events called squash and chill events. I would have have my speakers play some music 
Shona, shout out to her, would uh, give me like 15 rackets, like used rackets to use. And we would just go about just opening the space to students of color. Um, I would teach them and they would get a level of respect, regardless if it was five people that showed up or 15, they all learned something that day. And <laughs> they bought through store the next day, but you know, they were uh, excited about being given the opportunity to do something new and understand like, this is something that I love. And I'm glad that it was able to sort of bring people together. With that. That's amazing. You created your own space. You're on yeah. a safe space, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, wow. You feel alone in a lot of times in those spaces. And it's sometimes the subtle looks of this look of like, are you sure you're supposed to be here? <laughs> as I got just more into my confidence and stepped into myself, it was like, regardless if you want me here or not, I'm going to be here. Yeah. So let me make sure that you know that. And my <laughs> yes. apologetic sort of form, it went from like, I don't want to offend to, let me just step into myself because mm-hmm. the way that I move into my truth and being myself is not hurting anybody. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm not doing anything that demeans other people, but you best be proud of who you are. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, that, you know, so, so senior year, all that, you're now number one and it's done. You move on. You're moving on to the city squash mm-hmm. as coach. You were there for just briefly three years. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know. I know it. I know it meant a lot to you uh, yeah, to you know, be there. I'll tell you this: uh, the summer before my senior year at Wesleyan, I interned at SCA, and I got a chance to run a few events. I ran like the uh, Midwest Regional with uh, some really good people, and got a chance to coordinate there. And I love that. Just the the interaction, the opportunity to be a leader and delegate responsibilities. I got a chance to learn a lot and execute running an event and all the things. Who did, who were you engaged with? You know, in doing that, obviously players, um, staff members, board members. You know, it's quite a range of of folks. And what like constructing the tournament? You mean? Yeah, but just working with SEA. I mean, you begin to engage or interact with a range of people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and a lot of our alum really are challenged with regard to engagement with board members and people from different backgrounds that are very privileged um, and sometimes rub people the wrong way. What was your experience? So when I was working with SCA as an intern, I didn't have too many interactions with board members, but I will say after I worked with SCA, I interned at a uh, hedge fund, which was run by some board members of Street Squash at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for about two weeks. It was the most money I made in the span of two weeks. But I, for me personally, it was the most miserable I was for over the span of two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of it didn't feel fulfilling. It didn't feel like I was helping the people in this world that like needed to be helped. Um, mm-hmm. But I was making money. So mm-hmm. I was supposed to be happy with it. However, I wasn't able to put my best foot forward because the passions of the hedge fund was more about making money and I didn't feel like that connected with me. But I will say that period of time and two weeks in which I made that money, it Mm -hmm. reminded me that I wanted to do something that I love Mm -hmm. in terms of my career, in terms of that path. While I may not know what it is yet, I know this Mm -hmm. ain't it for me. Okay. Yep. I know the dollars ain't worth it for me because my, my soul don't feel right. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To have that understanding and to at least know that I know that now, it at least reminds me that what's not for me. And I could kind of just keep it pushing. So keep it pushing. And with City Squash, it was a shoe in the fit. You know, it was <laughs> Brooklyn program was on the rise. It had just come out, I want to say a year into its inception. I was uh I came into the program. It was this being able to build a foundation. The Brooklyn program was so young that it was almost like so young that you couldn't tell it what to do. <laughs> they had the program in the Bronx that was established for a while. This program in Brooklyn was just creating its foundations and its own roots. So nice. that part felt intriguing. It was like, yo, you got this blank canvas to be like, so how do you want to amplify the voices of these young ones? And yeah. within that journey, it was so cool because it was like, I want to empower them to be able to strut and be who they are in whatever space that they so choose. That was my mentality. Because if I find a way to have them become more confident in who they are, that's mm-hmm. going to transcend this squash court. That's going to find itself into everything that they do. And I had an epiphany of this message that was defined by my first year. It was, I am capable of great things. I had every student that I coached in that program we shouted that out three times before we started practice. <laughs> and it was, you know, you ask them, they're like, I'm like, how many times have you said this about yourself? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you got people who was like, I've never said this about myself. I've never said anything like that or close to it. And what I thought about is the Instagrams and this desperate need to look for the likes or to get all these things and to get this affirmation from the outside world when in reality you haven't told yourself how great you could be and you know to some eight nine ten year olds they're like whoa and and to see that growth though too because when they got hit with adversity you know Mm -hmm. down two love in the match and they talking to me about what we could do coach Raheem I'm like yo three times they have (laughs) like I'm capable of great things and I'm like yo (laughs) so if you know then let's do it. And as they sort of found progress, it was like, yeah, I am. And then they they brought that to the areas of that their lives in which they was not as confident in. So that might mm-hmm. be some of the athletes bringing that confidence of the squash court into the classroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well, that's the thing we always we talk about how you know if you build that confidence on court, it just translates right in the classroom. Uh, they go hand in hand. So now you've you've done that. I mean, you've you've raised these kids. You've helped them fly. And, you know, and I want to also just say, though, too, I think part of my biggest journey was, the best part about it was not only the squash players that got really good and done their thing in a short period of time, but it was also for those young people that are the average squash players, if you will, the middle of the line ones that needed someone to believe in them. Mm -hmm. And to see their progress that meant so much to me as well. To see mm-hmm. the person who couldn't hit the ball, barely could hit the ball during tryouts, but they did their best effort and they might be a star student, mm-hmm. but their progress on the squash court came a little bit slower. I will always remind them of, you could get caught up in these comparisons, but ask yourself, are you getting better each day? Because if mm-hmm. you're in competition with yourself and you just getting better, then like you getting better. And the speed at which you getting better is going to look different than that person or that person. When you mm-hmm. get one of these comparisons instead of acknowledging the progress that you're making on your own journey, I'm like, that's when you start to feel bad. Mm-hmm. 
And with that, you saw the progress of those middle of the line people to come back after I left to hear some of the people playing in their first tournaments and things like that. (laughs) That meant so much to me because they didn't give up. They could have got caught up and just been like, I can't do it. But something kept them there. And to see them now smiling, playing full points on the squash court. (laughs) It's like, that's why we do it. Second Mm -hmm. year, the message was each day I'm going to do the best that I can with what it is that I have. And I got that from a most deaf song called Umi Says. But with that, it was talking to them about each day is not going to be perfect. Like y'all go through stuff after y'all leave this, these squash courts. And I have to recognize that. Mm-hmm. You go through yeah. an old school day in which teachers might be blowing yours or not affirming your identities. And then you mm-hmm. come into this context and we inherit that. So if you're a little bit off your game today, mm-hmm. I understand. However, it's like trying to find that switch of like, I know you're going through some stuff and I'm going to give you your space, but how can you still make the most out of today while you're here and miss everything that's going on? If that means that you don't step on the court because you're aware of you might mess up the vibe because your head is not in the space that you want it to be, can you mm-hmm. do that? I'm not here to be like, you got to get on court because I said so. It's you're a human with emotions. You might be going through things that are bigger than life right now. Let me not minimize your feelings and then try to just push you into something that you may not be wanting to do on this particular day. Mm-hmm. But the days where their energy wasn't at is best and they still found a way to give their like best effort on that particular day mm-hmm. prepared them for those days in which days they was flowing and everything went well because they were still able to find a way and miss those turbulent days wow wow that's so full of joy i mean i i i, I see the joy you have in coaching i mean working with kids there and it's amazing it's i mean it's perfect i know you're at canterbury now does that translate? I mean, particularly, does that translate in these times where it's difficult to have that kind of one-on-one contact with kids uh, in that environment? It translates because it's the energy that you come with. For me, mm-hmm. when I was working with young people and I, you know, I'm still doing this, it's, I'm just big on communication. I'm big on transparency and I'm big on being a practitioner of what I might be asking them to do. Young people are very observant, regardless of the context. You have to earn the respect of these young people especially when you meet them. I think some adults kind of trip up with this expectation. They come with this assumption, like, you're going to respect me because I'm the adult. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's not discount the potential adults that have already let these young people down before they have met you. That said they were going to be true to their word and then didn't stick to their word. Let's make sure we don't discount that because they experienced that. So... The question that then goes on them is, how are you going to be any different? For me, that was, I'm like, yo, you got to prove that. And that comes with time. Mm -hmm. That comes with consistency. That comes with a consistent, like, I'm here if you want to talk. And always having that outlet to talk. And eventually, you will get to that point, to the point where they may want to talk to you on some real stuff. But Mm -hmm. you have to work to get there. And also, you have to reveal part of yourself if you expect to get there. Because you don't want to be a distant adult that kind of wants everything from these young people, but you're not willing to give anything to these young people. Um, Yeah. And they even talk about my connection with Shona. 
My mm-hmm. old squash squad told me I had to let go of her in like some ways in order to really have the best relationship that I could with Shona. So it's that letting go. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's it's deep. You know, we've talked before and I know uh, you're a very spiritual person. I mean, you really, you feel these things. Um, and just to clarify for the audience, you're now teaching at Canterbury as well as coaching mm-hmm. and you're teaching religion and what else? So I'm teaching two courses. I teach a human relations course. And essentially the themes of that course is the relationship between ourselves, God, and other people. We focus this semester on emotional intelligence. Uh, we've just started to talk about self-awareness, talk about self-regulation, talk about establishing boundaries and getting those boundaries to the people around you when something brings discomfort to you that you don't want. You have to talk about it and challenges that come with that because you may be dealing with societal pressures from people to say, you shouldn't feel that or, oh, but this or but that, you know? So that's the human relations class is how do we become better humans? But also we have to understand ourselves to a greater degree before we are really interacting with the world in the the ideal way that we want to be. And then I teach a world religions course, which touches upon, again, on the surface level, a variety of different faiths. And you really want to expand the open-mindedness. Because while I don't identify with any of the faiths that we studied, not judging something that you don't understand and deeming it as whack or something that you should be afraid of. I still remember this quote from Nasir Jones, hate me now, is people fear what they don't understand. They hate what they can't conquer. Guess you're just inferior men. And that quote, I really make sure that they understand that. Don't be afraid of it because you don't understand it yet. You should ask some questions to gain more understanding. Instead of just completely trying to distance yourself and assume that you know what that's like. That thing is like, whether that's mm-hmm. trying a new sport like squash or whether that be learning about a different religion that you may not subscribe to, but can still have a connection to your life. <laughs> wow. All right. All right. We got to move on now. I think, you know, I, I get the feeling that, you know, there's more to the story to be written, as you said early on, there's more to, to your story. And I look forward to that next, next book. But, you know, before we get there, before you do that, there's the ever-present Squash Radio Quick Fire section. All right. Um, I, I know you've heard of it, and I'm going to lay out a few of the questions for you. All right. But the first question is, you know, you know, what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie? So I would say there's this movie called Moonlight that I've seen a lot mm. of times, and it, it essentially dissects the sort of masculinity of the Black man. And mm-hmm. an extremely powerful story. It is. So that's something that intrigued me. But I also have been watching a lot of TV shows, which are like hour plus. So they're kind of like, <laughs> there's this uh, show called Lovecraft Country that uh, oh, yeah. I highly recommend. And I love, um, what else? Uh, oh, my God. There's this, there's this, <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> No, those two, those those two are great. Hard um, because it's like you have such different experiences with so many different movies. It's hard to be like this is the one. It's mm-hmm. like, depending on the timing in your life, it just resonates differently depending on when you watch it. Well, the the TV show particularly Lovecraft has come about uh, in the more recent uprising times, and so it seems like a lot of content is being developed, uh, is being released, taking that into context. And that's it, it's great. So the next question, what's your favorite mode of transportation? Favorite mode of transportation? 
I would say it's def- uh it was gr- it was grown to be my car. Um I like <laughs> I like being able to just drive. Uh it's something about being uh having the ox by your side and being able mm-hmm. to cruise that is blissful and to be able to drive with other people and help them get to their destination while also just enjoying the company of having someone else around you. Um definitely has become one of my favorite modes of transportation. Well, I would I would think you would say, you know, flying, but uh, uh driving. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the airport game be crazy sometimes. It's like I like flying per se. And but I also think about the experience of being at an airport. <laughs> it so slows I, you down. I don't, I don't like that part of it. So I do <laughs> But all right. I don't like the experience of really going through the airport and all of that. So I think that's why I didn't put it as my favorite mode of transportation. Oh, yeah. No, I love driving, too. I love driving fast. I love it. All right. Um, what gets you fired up, you know, positively or negatively? So I'll start with the negative first. Um, what fires me up negatively is when people have this assumption that they're above or uh, they're above someone else. I think I think a lot about sometimes like people who work in the retail industry or people who work as waiters or waitresses, and I pay attention to how people treat those people. Mm-hmm. It's like you're supposed to do this because it's your job, and that gives me right to disrespect you. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. somebody's full time, and when yeah. you talk down to them like they're under you. I really pay attention to that, and I'm like, nah, because this is this this is this person's livelihood. So the fact mm-hmm. that you're going about and try to disrespect them and mean, almost demean and devalue the meaning of their experience, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what fires me up mentally is intellectual simulation, just amazing conversations with good people. Uh, Nipsey <laughs> and watching or listening to anything of his definitely gets me fired up. Um, mm-hmm. Listening to anything Malcolm X or James Baldwin gets me fired up or or, <laughs> or Bell Hooks gets me fired up. Um, oh my gosh, you're really old school when it comes to your literature. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have an appreciation for my ancestors and those that Great. come before me and the foundations and the things that they've spoken about that it's important for us in the present to know so that we could redefine our future. But we have to make sense and really listen to what they were talking about in the past. It's like Sankofa. You've got to go backward to go forward. And it's, yes, exactly. And it's like, it gets me fired up because it's like, you hear them talk and you could close your eyes and be like, are they talking about today? Or are they talking about today? <laughs> and that fires me up. Good. All right. That's the positive side. And so what's something physical or mental that gives you disproportionate happiness? Mm, something that gives me, I would say, besides squash, um, because that, that that gives me such an amazing level of happiness. I would say, <laughs> honestly, just being able to talk to people that are looking to build ideas, just excitement to hear passion from your friends or loved ones about something that they're looking to cultivate and sort of bring forth into the world. That gives mm-hmm. me a level of happiness and joy, and that is just unmatched. And to hear conversations about people being honest and aware of who they are so it might be acknowledging something that like like an area of their personality that they may want to improve upon 
might be like Patriots or something like that. And wow. to be a part of those conversations and to be someone who is trusted enough to that someone is willing to be that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I miss the like toughness at times of those conversations. It brings me a level of happiness that someone is looking to propel themselves and grow as a person. Wow. Wow. I'm glad you're teaching the canopy. I'm glad you're teaching those courses. It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is there is there anything new that you've been thinking about trying? Um, so I've recently got a little swimming kick. So just finding really swimming, like I'm swimming for like 30, 40 minutes in the morning, about two days a week. And that's been really cool because it's finding comfort in a place in which I used to be very afraid, wanting to swim on the deep end or not even knowing how to. And to be able to go into that space and be able to work out there is definitely something that's just, it's affirming. And it reminds me of the power of the mind. You got to put in the work to get better at it. And then I've also been thinking about getting into uh, modeling. All right. All right. Wow. No, it's kind of the mindfulness. And now you kind of, you know, the internal side of you and then the external side of you, um, you know, putting yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This book has definitely helped with, I guess, reservations about it. Because then you come to realize when putting yourself out there, all of this is going to shine a light on who you are. And I'm like, mm-hmm. if you know who you are, then just stand up. And be <laughs> so, that's what I do. All right. Well, this next question is, what, what, what is an inspiring talk or video uh, that you could share with us that's accessible on the web? Mm, an inspiring talk. It's, uh, there's a commencement speech by Lauren Hill that's on YouTube. I want to say oh, wow. she gave it in about 99. Uh, mm-hmm. Talked about just being yourself in a world that sometimes tries to get you to conform. It definitely, it definitely hit a point. Um, there's an author by the name of Brian Stevenson. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, we need the mercy. Mm-hmm, just mercy. He gave the commencement speech at Wesleyan when I graduated. His t- TED Talk, We Should Talk About Injustice, is extremely powerful. It talks about prison industrial complex and the systems that come with that. It's definitely just something to listen to. Um, wow, wow. Yeah. And, you know, well, that's- I, I could go on because like, these, this is how I kind of like feed my brain, but it depends on what you're looking for for inspiration. Well, that's that leads us into the next question. I mean, that's those are the TED Talks that you like. Uh, if you were to give one and give one on a subject that you know you're not well known for, what would it be? Mm. A subject that I'm not super well known for, but am willing to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me process that. See, when I, when I think about this TED Talk idea, I'm like, um, maybe cooking. <laughs> In terms of, again, I'm not well known for it and I'm still getting better at it, but I would love to just talk about the process of going from like someone who kind of, you doubt yourself in the kitchen. To, mm-hmm. If you want to get stronger at it, you got to do it. Like, <laughs> just like, you know, you can't cheat the grind of anything. You know, mm, mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. it's something physical, whether it's something mental or whether it's something interpersonally, like you got to put in the work because you can't have this expectation of certain results without the process of doing. There's the- I, I get that. I got, I get that. I got to ask you though, what's, what are some things that you've made that you would, uh, would tell? Oh. What's, what's your favorite dish? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm, 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 
adding some like little honey garlic um, sauce with this chicken that I made. Um, ah, okay. And All right. some little spices and sauces to the shrimp that I made. Um, again, an area of growth. And I think that's why I wouldn't break, like you said, it's something that you're not known, you're not well known for. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or right. I would do a TED talk potentially on my, my journey with uh, running. Well, I, I, I'll go with the cooking. The, the sauces sound good. It's all about, it's always all, it's all about the sauce. <laughs> all right. And lastly, uh, last, what, what book or books um, uh, would you might be able to recommend and why? Mm, okay. I got you. Uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson is definitely a recommended book. Mm -hmm. I'm currently reading a book called The Intuitive Dance. Um, mm. I cannot remember the uh, author's last name, but it's like Authoron, um, Authoriton. Um, I don't remember okay. the last name, but the that book is about, and I recommend it because it talks about trusting your intuition. Mm. How many times you look back in retrospect, like I should have just trusted my gut, like X and Y was telling me that these things, mm -hmm. but you chose not to listen to it for whatever reason. So mm -hmm. it talks about that, that ability that we have in all of us and every person that's, a power in all of us just as a result of being human and how to intentionally build upon that in your own life. Wow. Um, just to, to go with your gut, so to speak. Go with your gut, but your intuition has different forms because it might be like, for some people, it's the gut talking to them. Sometimes it might be like two different voices talking to you. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. talking to yourself is like a voice that's like, nah, stay exactly where you are because there's comfort here. And then there's another voice that's like, let's go and find out what's on the other side of all this doubt. Mm, okay. It's being wow. able to discern from those voices though too, because they essentially sound like you, the doubtful voice and the mm -hmm. voice. <laughs> it's being able to essentially differentiate between the two and sort of elevate as a person. Wow. Well, Raheem, uh, those are some extraordinary answers. Uh, you're a very mindful, very contemplative person, um, deep for uh, lack of a better word. And, um, you know, I, I, life on the shallow end, James. <laughs> it's so fun for me over there. So it's, <laughs> I know. Deep in, deep in is always good, always best. And it's, you know, and I, I think about our world and our society, and it's like, I'm a person that leads with love. Um, I have a tattoo mm -hmm. on my right bicep that says, I will always stand up for my blackness and work each day to spread love and positivity. So it's like, it's almost like for me, me leading the way that I do is almost like a rebellion, if you will, against mm -hmm. not wanting to bring people closer together, against the division. It's like, nah, like, for as long as I'm here, that's the direction that I'm leading towards. And I want to bring people with me. I want to amplify their voices. I want them mm -hmm. to be confident in themselves. And with Black Boy Fly, with how I speak, it's follow your passions. Mm -hmm. And wherever they may lie. They may not be my passions. Mm -hmm. but in the hopes that I'm figuring out my own passions, that I encourage you to step into yours. Nice. Thank you, Raheem. This has been extraordinary. You know, I get, uh, you know, again, uh, there's more to the story to be written. And I so look forward to that. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right. Thank you for giving me the space, James. And I'm just fortunate to be here and just, you know, I speak from my heart because I'm a bad liar. So I'd rather. <laughs>
Well, peace and thank you again. Peace. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.